Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Michelle, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with us about this really significant issue. And we have the health minister of this country now ordering an independent review of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network after scientists have said that they issued an alert about COVID-19 that was not responded to. What do you make, first of all, of the health minister issuing an independent review when it was the government that changed the role of the GP? Um, uh, H-I-N. I mean, functionally what this means is that the government proactively eliminated a tool that could have been used to prevent some of the loss of life and economic crisis that Canada has seen. I think what concerned me even more than this news yesterday was her response to it. She was pressed on national television uh, with a very blunt question like, do you think that this cost Canadians lives? And she said... Uh, that she was fully briefed through other means on the dangers of the coronavirus the end of December and early January. And you'll remember in the House of Commons, on one of the few days that Trudeau allowed us to sit in this parliament, we asked the government, as the reports coming out of China, you know, very you know, frightening images, a lot of Canadians are worried what they were going to do about this. And Patty Haiju downplayed the virus, refused to close borders, um, sent P- our PPE to China. Um, like There was a lot of decisions that were made with her having full knowledge, in her own words. So not only did they eliminate this warning system, she was claimed she was briefed and then chose, I think, to make what were very deadly decisions. So, you know, this, an, an internal review that the Liberals are conducting, I mean, that is so small potatoes compared to what I just said. The reality is, is that... Um, Going into a season where people are sending their children back to school, we're seeing an uptick in coronavirus cases. We're being asked to trust these people. I don't think we should be trusting Patty Hyju. This is pretty bad. We uh, we knew and we know of the success of this global public health intelligence network in alerting to health threats because they were very uh, informative in 2003 with the SARS outbreak. And in 2009, with H1N1, so there's a demonstrated need for this organization, and they were they had their focus uh, adjusted, did they not, by the current government in 2018, and they took them away, not necessarily took them entirely away, but shifted at least some of their focus away from international health issues to domestic issues. So now they need an investigation? I mean, I think the results of that decision are pretty clear, and it's, you know, the loss of thousands of Canadian lives, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt, businesses lost, and now, you know, seven months in, the threat of another economic shutdown because they haven't been able, as a government, to come up with alternative strategies to prevent the spread of COVID-19 without shutting the economy down. And and to me, I mean, if we had if we had taken action, like we, we were, you know, issuing calls as a conservative party to, to take border control measures, screening measures at the airports, you know, in early February, late January. And it was, you know, almost two months after that, that they started to implement measures. So what did that do to our country? Um, I just, 
this is a I, at this point in time I, 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 we shouldn't be taking Hadi Hadji's advice I mean that's somebody's got to answer for that right and so Justin Trudeau has to explain to the Canadian public why he's still leaning on her and taking her advice as we go into a fairly um, important speech from the throne are you suggesting that the decision made by the minister and made by this government to change the mandate of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network actually cost thousands of lives in this country? Well, certainly her statement uh, yesterday where she said she was fully briefed on the dangers of the coronavirus in late December and early January as people were returning from holidays and her decision to downplay the risk in Parliament uh, to suggest that questioning China's was fueling conspiracy theories to send personal protective equipment to China during that time from a stockpile that we didn't really recover from, um, to refuse to close the borders, suggesting that calls to close the borders or put screening in place was racist. I mean, these are all things that I think did cost Canadians lives. These were, these were deadly decisions. We have, I mean, come on. If those measures had been in place, uh, two months earlier, uh, I, I do think that there would have been uh, better public health outcomes for Canada. And I, I, somebody has to say it, so I guess it's going to be me. I mean, these are pretty big screw-ups. And, yeah. you know, we, it, it, the best way to mitigate it now that we're in the middle of the suit is to say, well, at least we can stop taking that advice, right? Michelle, there's another story here, and that is on the 17th of January, the Canadian Forces, Armed Forces Intelligence Command, uh, reportedly passed information, briefed the Defence Minister about COVID-19, but it was another 10 days before the Prime Minister decided to convene his incident response group, I believe, to start to form formulate Canada's pandemic response. So 10 days between the forces... Uh, advising the National Defense Minister about COVID-19 and the crisis, 10 days between that notification being made and the Prime Minister uh, pulling together his incident response group, that raises additional questions, concerns. You know, I, I, I'm listening to you say that, and I'm listening to it thinking about somebody who, you know, lost a parent at a long-term care facility or who has been separated from loved ones um, in those facilities because of our lack of action on the front end. And that's unconscionable. Like, Ten days in a situation like that is, you know, the difference between control or non-control. And to even convene a task force, and I mean, this is why we have political ministers, right? It's why the government isn't just run by non-elected bureaucrats. It's because it's our job, it's the mandate as elected officials to question that advice and make decisions that are in the best interest of the Canadian public. So, you know, if they were receiving advice, I remember in January, um, the advice that was coming out of the WHO, for example, was that there was no human-to-human contact or uh, transmission of this. This was advice that was coming from China. I mean, and then for our own intelligence agencies to be saying, there's a problem here, and then take 10 days to even just convene a meeting on the issue, is it's a deadly decision. There's 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 another issue here. I mean, they just add up, or there's continuation. When we talk about the 
PPE equipment, and we know there was a huge shortage in this country. Now, I happen to have some masks left over from a personal family crisis, and I took them to a hospital because they needed them. In uh, in February, the, uh, the the federal government bureaucracy warned that uh, PPE shortage was really significant and that it was needed, you know, this need to be rectified. But it then took weeks for the federal government to start to sign contracts for items like the respirators uh, and, yeah. and masks. Weeks. And, and we sent a considerable stockpile to China. 16 tons, I believe it was. So, so, you know, the question is how many frontline workers were infected during that time period because of that decision? I bet you it was quite a few. And who's going to answer for that? Somebody has to answer for it, because if we keep taking advice from those people, um, how is the result going to change? Uh, I think, you know, it, I'm real, you know I, the silver lining in this is that at least these revelations are coming out now so that the Canadian public has a chance to change uh, providing this advice and direction. And I, I hope that everybody of any political stripe realizes that we can't go on this way. Uh, there's something that's here, and certainly, you know, Trudeau, as well as his health minister, Patty Hyde, they're at the top of the list to be helped to account. Last Sunday, we spoke with Mr. Greg Paris, father of Caitlin, who, with four young other Calgarians, was stamped to death in 2014 by Matthew DeGroote at a house party. DeGroote was charged with murder, but was diagnosed with schizophrenia and being delusional at the time of the killings. So he was declared not criminally responsible and turned from the criminal justice system to the health care system. And when we spoke with uh, Mr. Paris last Sunday, he had concerns about a Tuesday meeting hearing by the Alberta Review Board on uh, how to proceed with DeGroote, who was on an annual basis, and is on an annual basis, eligible for a complete discharge that could happen at any time. And uh, we have the opportunity to, again, speak with Mr. Paris and with Carol Dedelli. And you, most of you know Ms. Dedelli's story. Her son, Tim McLean, was horribly killed on a bus in Manitoba 12 years ago. And his killer, Vince Lee, diagnosed also as schizophrenic and uh, also declared NCR, was in 2017 discharged completely under the name of Will Baker. And there was a lot of response. Uh, Greg, thank you very much for coming back on the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Roy. I appreciate you having me on. And this is so important. I, it's you know I admire what you're doing, what the other parents are doing in in Calgary, what Carol has done for twelve years, because you're doing it with conviction and you want this NCR situation to be properly defined and administered. Carol, thank you as always. It's twelve years now. Twelve, yeah, for sure. Just I can't imagine what you've gone through over the last dozen years, even though we stayed in touch over that time. It's been, it's been rough. There's just no other way to describe it. Yeah. Um, something's got to change, and something has to change sooner rather than later. The way that Canada um, processes mentally ill killers, what they do with them needs to change. Without a, without a legal mechanism that requires them to treat their illness and and... Um, strict monitoring after release, 
you know, absolute discharge shouldn't even be in the card, shouldn't even be an option. And that's what was uh, granted uh, now, Will Baker, then Vince Lee. I will tell you both this. There was a lot of response by way of email all week long. Uh, Greg and Carol, there was people across this country take real interest and have a great interest, certainly in what we talked about last last Sunday. Uh, Greg, you approached Tuesday's hearing with real concerns. Before I ask you for your response to what happened, remind us why you had those concerns. Well, the problems always, whenever we go into these uh, reviews, we get kicked in the side of the head by how quickly they're moving to reintegrate DeGroote into society. So I had huge concerns based on the previous four meetings that we had as to what they were going to be looking to recommend this year. So a lot of, a lot of fears leading up into Tuesday from, from all the five families. Yeah, and there was a concern I know you had, and I know Carol's experienced this, as have others, where you almost feel, I've heard that you almost feel as families, that you're superfluous to the uh, to the debate, to the issue, and your victim's impact statements, we talked about this last weekend, your victim's impact statements really are at the mercy of the system. Yeah, there's a, Total. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of controls on the victim impact statement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we can't say, and... and uh, one of the things that came clear this year, um, every one of the individual uh, parents that had something to say, we all made a point of saying how much our victim impact statements have been redacted this year. So, you know, we're all realizing that more and more of what we say isn't allowed in that setting. So this is why we need to talk to people like yourself, Roy, where we can actually openly talk about what our concerns are and how we think this individual should be treated and why they shouldn't be in such a a hurry to let them out. Mm -hmm. What happened to the hearing on, on Tuesday, Greg, how did you, I know you felt better coming out of there than you did going in. What happened? So I would say this is our fifth, fifth review in four years. It was the first time that I felt like there was some measure of caution there was some measure of logic in the conversation related to the report that was presented to the board. And I think there's two reasons why it seemed a little more reasonable. Uh, first of all, the treatment team was a lot more cautious in, in granting recommendations and freedoms, particularly unsupervised freedoms. And the second thing was, is we had four brand new board members um, that had just been appointed recently. And, and particularly the board chair was new, a lawyer. And he asked a lot more questions, provided a lot more commentary and concerns than in previous years. Usually they ask a few questions and then they just move on and just leave it up to the doctors to decide how this should be done. But this year I felt that the board chair actually looked at all the evidence and said, boy, I, I feel there's some risks here in terms of this current situation. And why is it that you think you should offer them availability to a group home at this point in time if you feel like the risk factors are, are higher than through your report? So I have some cautious optimism that they will have a lot stricter decisions on uh, the treatment team's recommendations this year. 
And we should state, and, and you did this again last Sunday, that there are reports that if anything happens to Matthew DeGroote as far as his medications are concerned, where he just goes off them or something changes, the consequences could be catastrophic, oh, correct? Catastrophic. So, the you know, the his former treatment team in Calgary used the term catastrophic with the outcome if he was to devolve. And the current treatment team in Edmonton just said the the outcome would be severe and that anyone in his sphere he would kill them they were very clear it's not a it's not an if or when if he devolves he would definitely kill because he's a paranoid schizophrenic carol in your experiences with the manitoba review board and you and i talked to when 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 you had your first meetings with them and i ended up interviewing the yeah. uh, the chairman the first time and i was very dis- dismayed by the by the interview frankly what do you remember most about the review hearings that took place when you were there and you wanted answers about what happened to your son, Tim? Well, there was no answers to be had because the review board hearings have nothing to do with me or my son or the crime. Review board hearings only have to do with the accused mental state. So you do feel very um, disregarded. Um, my my uh, victim's impact statement was very, very censored, just like everybody else's in the Brentwood Five and everybody else who has been a victim of an NCR killer. Uh, I've talked to so many families, and the stories are all the same. Um, paranoid schizophrenia, as far as I've uh, ever been told, is incurable. So if somebody has an incurable illness and is medication-dependent to maintain a level of normalcy and control of their own self, how do you then let that individual free to make the decision to medicate or not? That, that's my problem. That's where my biggest problem comes in. The, the decision to treat or not to treat should no longer be these individuals' decision to make. It should never be that they're ever released without mandatory medication and monitoring, and that's not the case. Greg, your thoughts on that? Uh, I 100% agree with Carol. Like she hit it, she's hit the nail right on the head. Um, well, you really you is. you you give the I'm sorry, you give the right to choose to, to make a decision and a, a clearly a, a life decision to an individual who's incapable of making that decision at at least when they're in the grips of their paranoia they are incapable of making that decision then that's where the state needs to step in i think we need to introduce a private member's bill where if if an individual reoffends, first of all they have to be medicated they have to be uh treated there has to be monitoring and if they fail that if they fail to do that and there's a reoffense at least then there's a recourse. We can now charge the individual, so they will carry a criminal record, for foreseeable gross negligence causing death because now they knew. They knew they had this condition. I mean, in Vince Lee's case, he was seen in three different provinces by three different healthcare systems. And we're supposed to just accept that all three failed and he is now free to live wherever he wants? Unacceptable. Were you ever informed when he was granted his unconditional discharge in 2017? Well, we, got the, 
we got the review board uh, decision, yeah. We knew it was coming, and they're fast-tracking uh, Matthew DeGroote, no matter how um, attentive they appeared to be this this uh, this year at the review board hearing. They're, they're looking to let him go. They're looking to get him well and back into society. Greg? That's their goal. Yeah, What's your sense? Their, their goal is to re- reintegrate him, and the only reason they're really moving more cautiously this year is because they they've changed his medication, and then so they're trying to get him over into 100% injectables. And you know, once you're in that injectable stream where you can have three to four weeks of medication, then it's easier to release them. So one of the reasons they're being more cautious on the treatment team side is because they need to monitor him, and, and they've kind of indicated they need to monitor him for at least a year. So there's a lot of conversation going, well, why are you talking about having this recommendation for a group home now still on the table if you need to monitor him, uh, his medication for the next year? Because last year when they tried to take him off um, oral medication, he started to have uh, symptoms. And so now they're watching him for those symptoms. So, you know, uh, yes, I agree with her 100%. The whole, the whole process is a cookie-cutter approach it doesn't really matter what they did, whether they murdered one, five, ten. I don't, I don't know where the threshold is where you say this is a person that's too dangerous to leave to their own devices. And all we're trying to do, what our group is trying to do, it's a very small line in the sand. We want absolute discharges off the table for the most violent people like Matt DeGroot, like Vince Lee, that murder people especially when it's not their own family. They murder strangers. They have no connection to these people. That's what, we're, that's what we want, and that's why we're working with Stephanie Cousy and, and uh, MP for Mindapore, and all of our MPs got together with us and had a press release in June. We want to get this into Parliament, so we need to get Parliament back working, and we need to, you know, what Carol tried to do by herself before, we're trying to support her, and we want to get some things done here where people like this are never unmonitored. You know, uh, I have to I have to point out, and you know this, uh, that we can't even say they commit murder because they're declared not criminally responsible. So, um, just, that, just because, just because. No, I understand. Can, I understand, Carol. I'm yeah. just being. You know, I have to. I have to say that technically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's, but here's. I just want to share this with you, both of you. When both of you say that your victims' impact statements are redacted, and you're essentially instructed what your victim's impact statement may state. That says to me that the state has less interest in your children who are no longer alive than they do in the person who took their lives. Well, I was told, I was directly told that it was not to offend the offender or his treatment. We can't say things that will upset him, in other words. Well, guess what? What he did really upset me, and I think he should have to sit there and hear everything we have to say. Agreed. And then get on with your treatment. Greg, do you have any idea when the Alberta Review Board will let you know what the next steps are they've decided to take? Uh, Well, it's, you know, they they, they hear a bunch of hearings in one day, or not in one day, in our case, it was a full day, but in a week. So I would think that it'll be, you know, anywhere from one to two weeks. This sort of case doesn't generally drag on too long. One other year, I think they took a month. 
and that's where we got chastised as victims for being toxic and ruining Calgary for them. Um, so they took longer, but I would I would think within the next two weeks anyway they should have their current recommendations. That's so shameful that you were made to feel that way. That's oh, I lodged a complaint. I two years ago okay, the, I lodged a complaint against the board. Do yeah. because of their treatment of the victims, we were completely bashed for having any outward emotion. I was chastised twice for looking around the room, trying to engage people in the room besides the board. And then we were criticized in, our, in the disposition for being that we created a toxic environment for him to live in in Calgary. Right. Dr. Day, thank you very much for the time. And would you just remind everybody across the country the fundamentals of your case? I mean, I give it in one sentence, but you can expand on that, I'm sure. Yeah. So the fundamentals are basically um, if the government promises you health care in a timely way, which it does, and then fails to deliver it, should you legally be allowed to look after that health care yourself using your own resources? And, 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 and this is, as you said, it's a decision that went to the, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada in, in, in a Quebec. Uh, the Quebec uh, government, in Quebec, they have their own charter, but it's very similar to the Canadian charter. So essentially what the decision was this week um, or last week now, I guess, um, was that residents of Canada who live outside of Quebec shouldn't have the same rights of freedom that residents of Quebec have. And, and I think it's important to point out that this is a right that every other country on earth, every other country on earth allows its citizens the freedom to go, if you're not getting health care from the government that's promised it, to go and look after yourself. And and in BC alone, even before the COVID pandemic, government, um, the government um, data that's in evidence at the trial shows that at any one time, 40,000 British Columbians, so you could extrapolate that by multiplying by almost eight for the country, um, were waiting past what the BC government has determined is the medically maximum acceptable time beyond which serious problems of health arise, including uh, potentially death. So this is, an, this is um, again, I can't overemphasize, oh, there are no jurisdictions outside of Canada anywhere on this earth that have such laws. And, um, and uh, we, we, we are very, you know, we're going to challenge this. It's an attack on the health of Canadians, and we're going to go further through the court. We take some comfort in the fact that the the Quebec decision was also not um, not allowed at the lower levels of the courts in in Quebec, and and we have we have uh, you know we're at the start right now where this decision is at the lower level court in British Columbia. Yeah, it's been going on a long time though. Was it twelve years or so? Thirteen years, perhaps. Well, it's 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 yes, it's um, it's eleven it's eleven years since we started and and, and no, over over and but the point. The point that's um, very important is in one health region alone in British Columbia, um, the evidence in trial, not disputed, it was that 308 patients in one region, hospital region, died on the wait list in, in one year. 
Well, I can tell you, I've I've spoken with doctors now, not recently, but certainly uh, within the last twenty years, uh, on a number of occasions, spoken with doctors who are furious that patients die on wait lists. It's just yeah. it's it's and it just doesn't so it's not acceptable. Yeah, extrapolated across Canada, uh, seventy-five thousand Canadians yeah. have died on wait lists yeah. since we started this action. Yeah. One of the big issues, of course, was cardiac wait times. Uh, and I remember when I had my procedure done, and I'll just mention this in 10 seconds, I had a situation that where I might not have lived more than a few more days, according to some estimates, um, but I waited four months to get a fundamental procedure done, an angioplasty and a stent. I had to wait four months. And well, that should not happen. Yeah. But, Dr. Day, what do, people who disagree with you would say, well, look, you're creating a reality where private health care would disadvantage the poor, and doctors would just have the opportunity to bill more sources, like you bill yeah. government, you bill patients, you bill insurance companies. So that's the counter-argument. Yeah, but it's a, an argument that you, you, we do not accept that countries like Sweden and Denmark and Norway are right-wing radical countries um, that, that allow... Uh, what it is is if there's a small element of hybrid healthcare, we call it, where there is a small... So in Britain or New Zealand, there's a small, there's a relatively small percentage have this insurance, but have private health insurance, but um, that makes the monopoly that we have in Canada would, would improve. So it actually would improve the public system. And you have to bear in mind that in the, in the wake of the COVID crisis, um, modeling from McMaster University has shown that wait lists are going to going to rise four to seven times what they yeah. have been oh, yeah. so, so yeah. this is a disaster uh, waiting to happen we all believe in a strong public system but we want a strong public system like the swiss and the germans and the and the dutch and the belgians have where people in the public system don't wait because the, because the public is able to look at what the what the alternative is and that makes the government have to um, be accountable here there is no accountability in our health system that, that, that and 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 we we've seen this that i don't know any monopoly that is good for the consumer and that applies in healthcare healthcare also well our situation with delayed surgeries because of covid we now have the premier of ontario saying that he'd like doctors to work on weekends to try to catch up because we know there are situations we know people with very serious illnesses have either voluntarily decided not to pursue uh, medical treatment because they were afraid. And I guess that might have been the primary scenario, but it just doesn't look uh, your, your, your argument makes great sense to me. I, I know I'm going to hear from people saying that, uh, that I don't understand the situation, but I think the precedent was set by the Supreme Court in the Shaouli case in Quebec. So when it goes to the Supreme, your case goes to the Supreme Court, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they decide in And favor. I think when it applies to you as an individual or your loved ones, your approach changes. And, and that's yeah, good point. the opponent against us in court, leaders of the opposing groups in court have all used private health care and private clinics for themselves. Ron Foxcroft is the only Canadian to referee NCAA Division I basketball, refereed the 1976 Montreal Olympics gold medal basketball game, is the inventor of the Fox 40 peelous whistle, which was being used globally by referees in major sports leagues around the world uh, prior to the pandemic, and uh, now there's an adjustment that's been made, and we're going to talk to Ron about that. I also want to mention that he's uh, Entrepreneur of the Year, Basketball Hall of Fame, 
Honorary Colonel in the Canadian military, had an audience with uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Um, so, I always think there's two of you. But, <laughs> but <laughs> so look, let's talk about what what's what's going on, uh, Ron. Let's talk about what you know what's happening as far as refs are concerned in major pro sports, and and where you and the entrepreneurial effort that you've put together come into play. Absolutely, Roy, and there really is one of us. We're an officiating family. I have three sons. Uh, Steve just worked the Bills game on the chain crew. Dave's done uh, six Grey Cups, and Ronnie's a basketball referee. So, you know, uh, we're we're a great team. But, Roy, uh, let me tell you what happened to our company. Back in March, when the pandemic hit Canada hard, our sales dropped 85%. And our team got together and say, are we going to be another Canadian statistic, a company that doesn't make it, or are we going to forge ahead and be innovative, creative, and use technology? So, Roy, what we did is we came up with products that will allow sports to return, and, and you said it great in your intro, allow sports to return when health and safety is is paramount. Now, uh, all your listeners have been watching NHL in the bubble, NBA in the bubble, uh, college football, NFL football starting on Thursday night, and we've come up with products that are called close proximity safety products that are used in sport to keep everybody involved in sport safe and healthy. And, and that includes, Roy, products like an electronic whistle, where you actually push a button and it sounds like a whistle, uh, the protective pouch, which goes over the whistle and reduces the bacteria droplets when you, you blow the whistle. And, Roy, when you blow a whistle, it's the equivalent to a sneeze. We've got a whistle mask and so on. So just to give you an example that your listeners will probably uh, recognize when I tell them, but in the NHL, there's a special whistle called the call. And it, once again, reduces the uh, bacteria, uh, pandemic droplets. Uh, nothing contains them entirely. But it's called the call. It's a peeless whistle, and it's named after the famous, iconic hockey referee, John McCauley. The first call in the restart was made by his son, Wes McCauley, with the whistle named after his father. He's also a referee, right? Yeah. And, and now in the NBA, Roy, they use the Fox 40 protective pouch, which goes over the whistle. And the, the technology challenge there with putting a pouch over a whistle, you can cannot really cause the the sound to be reduced in any way. You can't compromise the sound because when you blow a whistle in an NBA or any basketball game, it has to activate what's called the precision time clock and shut off the clock at the speed of light. So we've got these close proximity products. We're a Canadian company. We were not going to be a failing Canadian company because our sales did drop in March when this hit by 85%. So we've been creative and innovative, and, and we're uh, helping sports restart. 
And it would needs to be said that there was a lot of discussion about how the referees would in fact do their job. How are they going to how are they going to blow uh, a whistle and blow a foul or, a, or 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 start a second half or do whatever they have to do when they blow a whistle? And the leagues were perplexed about how to do this. And the your Fox Forty whistles were already the official whistles of the uh, NHL, the NBA, the NFL, the CFL, the NCAA, uh, international soccer. And, and you've been able to satisfy the leaks. And we have about a minute and a half, Ron. It's a great story because yeah. we're all getting to see sports again. And if they didn't have this, your technology, we may not be able to watch what's going on. How, how involved have the leagues been in this, all these discussions? I'm glad you asked that question because it's not only the leagues uh, uh, that are making these big, important decisions around health and safety, but it's the health professionals that are advising the league. So, they were perplexed, uh, the leagues, and, and they called us with their health professionals on the line who are making these key decisions because sport was not going to return. And I'll give you an example. Uh, volleyball returned this week in, in college in the United States. Soccer returned this week. And they are responsible for the health and safety of these students. So the conferences and the leagues were perplexed. We came up. I've got an amazing R&D team. Uh, basically, uh, my son Dave and Steve and Ronnie and everybody at the company are working every single minute of every single day to help these sport leagues uh, return. Well, I've got to do this because we're, we run short on time, yes. as you know. But you've done a tremendous job. It's a great Canadian success story. We talk a lot about Canadian business and Canadian employment. You provide both. I love the fact that we can watch sports again, professional sports at the highest level. And I know you're very much involved in this. Without the whistle, without your product, without the Canadian involvement, we might be just sitting watching uh, tell, watching somebody tell or t- watching a game somebody tells us was really interesting in 1987. That's right. Fox, yes. thanks very much. Roy, it, we're proud to be Canadian. Thanks for anyway. having me on your show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.